0: Before we start today's episode, I have to address a couple of things. Hiya, Editing Punk here, with a pre-episode agenda in four chapters. Chapter 1. Confusion This episode we are discussing the pilot to Stargate SG-1 titled Children of the Gods. That thing aired as a two-parter, they are the first two episodes of the show Stargate, and later they were released as a single movie, so... Throughout this episode, we refer to it sometimes as episodes, sometimes as movie. Sorry for the inconsistency. In order to avoid further confusion, any time we are actually talking about the 1994 Stargate movie, the one we talked about in the last episode, we will mention that explicitly. If we don't do that, you can assume we are still talking about Children of the Gods. Chapter 2. Opinion At least for now, Lils has the major talking portion of our podcast. That is partly because I have already seen the whole show and am more interested in their unspoiled opinion, partly because they have far more background knowledge regarding Orientalism, sexism and other similar topics than I do. That does not mean I do not share their opinion. Sometimes I ask questions, challenging a point they made, Usually I do that to give them the opportunity to further explain a statement or give our listeners more context for the things we are talking about. Sometimes they talk about things I genuinely don't understand, of course, then I will ask as well. But for the most part, you can assume that the statements made in this podcast reflect the opinion of the both of us. If I actually disagree with anything Lil says, I will say that in the podcast and we will talk about our different opinions, as you might hear in this episode. Chapter 3. Testing. You all know that we are extremely new to podcasting. Part of that is that we still need to find our own style. Much of the vibes you experience when you listen to an episode of your favorite podcasts isn't only created while the hosts are recording, but also in editing. We are still finding our own vibe, and for that we need to experience different vibes. That is why I edited this episode very differently from the first one. This one should sound a lot more... Alive, way less reduced to only speech. But that might also be annoying. I would really appreciate if you could leave us a comment or write a message on which style you preferred or which elements of either style you liked or disliked. And finally, chapter four, triggers. Stargate deals with some delicate topics, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. And... Given the focus of our podcast, we feel obligated to talk about those. I will do my best to put trigger warnings in our episodes, whenever I think it's appropriate. And Lils will look out for potentially triggering topics as well. That said, we probably both have our blind spots, and it might happen that we miss a topic that should actually be included in the trigger warnings. If you ever think we missed a trigger warning, please let us know, so we can edit the episode and re-upload it with the appropriate warnings. This episode, we are going to mention rape and gaslighting. At some point in the episode, we will be talking in more detail about a scene that, in our opinion, functions as a metaphor for rape and victim-blaming. For that specific discussion, I will insert another more immediate warning, including details about how long we will talk about this, and a beep signal marking the beginning and ending of that discussion. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the podcast.
1: Okay, stop now.
0: Sorry. Hello, strangers, and welcome to Stargazers: a discussion on identity and representation in Stargate. Episode two for better and for worse. This episode deals with Children of the Gods, the 1997 pilot movie for the TV show Stargate SG One, later aired as a two-parter episode, and then aired as a re-edited movie in 2009. Lils, what did you just watch?
1: I just saw aliens abducting a soldier from a U.S. airbase as the Stargate activated for the first time after a year. We then see O'Neill being retrieved from retirement And there's a team for an expedition to go through the Stargate to figure out what's going on. In the process, we reunite with uh, Jackson, Skara and Shauri, who is now named Shari, to figure out what is going on and why there are new attacks coming from Stargates. After the reunion, there is a fight and Skara and Shauri are... Damn it. After the fight, uh, Skara and Shari are being abducted by the evil aliens. Uh, there is a failed retrieval after which O'Neill, Jackson and the others return to the base, but now they have an unwanted passenger. Kowalski is possessed by a brain slug. And that's about it.
0: That's the episode. What did you think?
1: Well, my thought process immediately starts with uh, the intro scene where we see soldiers playing cards. And my first thought was, oh my God, we have a female soldier. That's great. That's something that didn't happen in the movie before. So I was like, yay, we have an improvement. Unfortunately, she turned out to only be there to be abducted by aliens coming through the Stargate. So we have the classic trope of a person who's perceived as a woman and white being the victim. In general, I think it's a big problem of Stargate, who gets to be seen as a victim and what victimhood means here, because it's usually a very passive thing. We have a very strong dichotomy of alien perceived as non-white predators and perceived as light-skinned victims, and it's very off, but more to that later. This scene adds again to dehumanizing the aliens who are now perceived as predators from a faraway, unknown place, in contrast to the soldiers who we empathize with, not only because they are only defending themselves, but also because one of them is a victim and gets lost by being abducted. Afterwards, we skip to the home of O'Neill, our retired, I think it's Colonel, I'm not sure, Yes. Ah, great. Me and army grades—we're doing great here. Um. So yeah, O'Neill was retired, but now General Hammond. Yes. Uh, steps in to revoke his retirement. I guess in again. Yeah. Also, can we talk about
0: workers' rights here? That's
1: that seems highly inappropriate. I think
0: that's a thing that can happen in Germany too.
1: Yes, let's talk about how that is a problem. Just because it's real doesn't mean it's okay.
0: Yeah, okay, that's fair.
1: (laughs) Uh, So O'Neill, who is still our only actual person, is now the protagonist of the show, it seems. And he is being pulled in to figure out what is going on, why there are aliens who are coming to Earth, where they could come from, because he has told the military that he had destroyed the Stargate on the other side, which was a lie.
0: Colonel O'Neill has a portrait by Richard Dean Anderson. Uh, This is a different actor than the one we saw in the movie. Uh, And you are right, uh, as of this point, he is the only character with actual character traits Uh, I do like his portrayal, though. Um, What are your thoughts on the change of actors?
1: Oh, that is interesting. Um, I would argue that I already like the first depiction of O'Neill. That doesn't affect my uh, relationship to the current actor. I think he does it very well, too. I'm more interested into the change in the character himself, because I think they both portrayed it accordingly and you you can empathize with him i think you can see what's going on with him in both movies although one is kind of also an episode who knows um yeah i would argue both portrayals are good in my opinion would you
0: disagree i do like kurt russell and his portrayal of the character in the 1994 movie um it is a different character indeed and i think this depiction of the character very much adjacent to action heroes of the 80s action movies um, with a hint of bitterness and I think that's a good character for a movie like that but I am glad that for the show they changed him up a bit Oh,
1: that is super interesting because I would argue that he now is this this hero with um. Because I would argue that he now is this hero with the smidge of bitterness. Um, I would also argue that for me personally, this is not the kind of development I would have expected, especially given that, well, he defied orders last time, right? And he defied orders which were morally more than questionable. He was asked to to nuke an entire civilization and he did not do that and in my opinion it would have been very interesting to see an anti-militarist o'neill in this scenario super unrealistic given who finances this thing fair would it have been a great arc yes
0: (laughs) yeah okay i agree with that one
1: uh so yeah general i do however like the character i think it He has potential, you know? I don't think he will reach that. Like, there is a lot to learn and I don't think it will happen. I will also talk about his uh, polite sexism, I guess, because that is an interesting (laughs) thing, isn't it? In my opinion, it is completely insane how we have this dichotomy in here again of... What we are supposed to perceive as good and bad, and the aliens are the worst of the worst because they they technically sell their women and have them in harems, and it's uh, it's object objectification at its purest. But then we have the military dudes who are neither Hammond nor O'Neill. We will get to Hammond later. Um, who are also sexist in a more commonplace '90s kind of way, and that is called out too. But O'Neill's offhand commentary towards Carter, we're supposed to sympathize with that. We're supposed to like when he points out that she sometimes is called doctor and sometimes captain. And don't you decide which you like better? So that is kind of horrifying, but I'm getting ahead of myself.
0: We are supposed to sympathize with Colonel O'Neill because he is the white cis male guy of the show. And that's who this show is for.
1: Precisely. It's not only that. It's also, in comparison to now, this is very old media. And I think there was a time when we were not supposed to question whether the perspective from which a story is told is good or bad. We were not supposed to, to reflect on the issues of our protagonist's storytelling in a way that we are oftentimes compelled to do now.
0: I forgot a teeny tiny bit of information that I thought was so cool and that I wanted to mention. I just didn't. I already mentioned when the show aired. Do you remember?
1: I remember that the movie is from 1994. I think this is 1997 or something.
0: Making it exactly 25 years ago.
1: Oh! oh! How do you say jubileum in English? Jubilee. It's a jubilee!
0: Yes, a quarter century.
1: Yes, and see how times have changed. (laughs) Luckily. Oh, yes, in fact, it is very interesting. Um, I talked to a friend of Punk's and a friend of mine who was young when the show aired. And so she had a very different perspective than I on the depiction of female characters in the series because she was like, well, you know... I see all the criticism you have about Carter, but I was like, there is a woman in a lead role and she does stuff. So it is very interesting to see how even if media still is problematic and there are lots of things to be changed and representation of minorities, we did kind of come some way at least. And that is slightly encouraging because that means, hey, maybe we'll progress from here too.
0: Enter party sound effect.
1: I don't understand. Did I do something?
0: Yeah, I, I, I thought it was funny to have a, a party sound effect in the podcast here.
1: Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. It's like we have <laughs> yes, yes. Especially given that it is such a low bar thing, right? I mean, like it's wow. We're not in the nineties anymore, and maybe we're gonna even progress from here, guys. Isn't that great? Ah, well, all right. Um, I do want to continue.
0: this is so much more chaotic than the last one we did how did that happen
1: uh my my notes are less structured (laughs) than before i am so sorry i did them today forgive me internet it is only it is chronologically like really it is chronologically per scene the problem is that we're always skipping ahead and talking about issues already right now i am really sorry (laughs) So O'Neill is pulled from retirement by General Hammond. And that guy is something. Um, O'Neill is asked whether he knows the alien, which is seen on the surveillance camera as the lady soldier is being abducted. And I found that very interesting because that was a classic move of, I see them as a monolith so you know one alien you gotta know all of them right it's like the similar thing of hey my cousin's gay too i'm sure you would really understand each other so well there was also derogatory speech and likeness to animals and at first i was like yeah that is fucked up shit But then he acknowledged the personhood of the aliens. And I was like, okay, are we going to get a complex reflection on how he perceives this alien and that it might be problematic not to acknowledge their form of being as feeling and also valuable? But no, we don't get that. After acknowledging their personhood, he revokes it twice by relativizing it. So that was almost worse than not acknowledging their personhood in the first place, because he addressed a problem, or the movie series, whatever, addressed a problem, and then said, yeah, but it's kind of not important, you know? So here, again, we have this dehumanizing effect. It is, again, us, the, the white saviors, the US military, the real persons against the purely villainous things from outside. And that in itself wouldn't be problematic weren't the aliens depicted as they are with cultural symbols from another place.
0: You have referred to the alien race as such a few times now. Do you remember their name?
1: I only remember Ra, I Did we get a name?
0: For the race, yes, we did.
1: Did we do that in the double episode? Because in the movie, I didn't think. Then I'm sorry, I overheard that. What are they called? I'll show you
0: how it's written. They are the Goa'uld.
1: Ah, yes, you're right. Goa'uld. Okay. I'm going to write that down so that I don't have to say aliens all the time. Tjalk wasn't a Goa'uld, right?
0: He was a Jafar. He
1: was a Jafar, exactly. That is interesting so, we, in this episode, we will be introduced to an alien, a Jafar, who is no not R bad.
0: No I'll show you how Jafar. it's written. Jafar, sorry. <laughs> oh, you couldn't know. There you go.
1: So, Tjalk uh, is a Jafar, not a Guaud, And that is interesting. So, we are introduced to aliens who are good. Because he kind of gets this redemption arc where he helps them fleeing. Um, but still, the Goa'ult remain completely villainous. We still do not have even a single example of a good Goa'ult. And what we also have to say is that... Um, and what we also have to say, and that is very interesting, because at the end of the episode, we have Tiak who is basically the alien exception. He's the Jafar who defied the gold and, uh, and helped the humans. So the problem with this is we only have one positive example, and that's it. He is construed as an exception. And on the other hand of that, we have Kowalski, who is now the human exception. He is now the one guy who is evil, and that is a bit hilarious because it isn't even him. It is an alien that pretends to be him. So the dichotomy of good and bad, it might be muddled down ever so slightly, but it's not really contradicted on a bigger scale.
0: Given that this is supposed to be a TV show, um, would you have introduced a bigger diversity in those groups to begin with? Or do you think that might harm the simplicity of the narrative?
1: I think it is possible to introduce more variety from the beginning. If you think about it, it kind of makes sense. You could have, even in the 1994 movie, just had not only humans who were abducted and not only humans who come to rescue, especially not just white saviors. So you could have had a multiplicity of Species being so, you could have a multiplicity of species being oppressed by Ra and them uniting together and fighting against him and therefore beating him. It would have actually been quite a great story, too, because it would have shown if you respectfully cooperate, you can defy this kind of person, and it would also have shown exactly that you also have like. Evil is not a characteristic of a species or a race, okay? Evil is...
0: Evil is what you do, not who you are.
1: Exactly. Actions can be evil. And no one consists of only bad actions. That I mean, we already talked about that in the last podcast. I really didn't like that Ra literally had no single good characteristic. And I hated that. And if you look at O'Neill, O'Neill is a flawed character. But we still like him. And at the start of the, the 1994 movie, we were not supposed to like him. We were supposed to, to grow to like him. And why did we do that? Because he had a complex interplay of good and bad characteristics. But we saw that his intentions were mainly positive.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think that's a huge change we start seeing in modern media compared to media from 20 years ago. It was very common for movies, especially of the science fiction and or action genre, to have very simplistic worldviews depicted. Uh, And I think they suffer from this lack of diversity and um, emotional depth.
1: I think media has generally come a long way in not only giving main characters and supporting roles decent motives and complex personalities. We see more and more in media that everyone gets some kind of arc that makes sense and makes them that that makes the audience get a grip on them. And I think that is something that Stargate, unfortunately, kind of lacks, especially for the villains. The villains, in my opinion, are not relatable at all. There is no way we can really get a grip on what they are. They are too foreign. And I think that is a side effect of Orientalism in this particular case.
0: Yeah, probably. And what you just said about villains standing out when they have a more complex character arc, that is still a criterion I use for villains I see in movies today because that's a point uh, producers and writers to this day tend to overlook and the best villains are those that you can feel with or at least understand.
1: I completely agree and writers get another bonus point from me if their writing includes a perpetrator-inclusive worldview. I think it is important that even if someone is an offender, to still regard them as a human being and on a societal level, to still treat him with the basic (laughs) I just hymned him. That's not cool. We Ah. we they that. (laughs) So, uh writers get a bonus point from me if they have a offender inclusive picture of human beings. I think it is very important that even if someone is a culprit, that they are still being treated with a minimum of respect and acknowledgement of their basic human rights.
0: Spoiler warnings for She-Ra and Steven Universe. If you haven't seen those shows, you can skip the next minute and 15 seconds following the beep. The end of the spoiler section is going to be indicated by another beep. I think... uh the character of Ketra in the show she is an excellent example for this.
1: Yes, I can see that. But I would argue that we are... I mean, Ketra gets a redemption arc, right? And that kind of makes it a little bit different. I would argue that Steven Universe oh, yeah, okay. with uh, Pink Diamond is kind of excellent. Because, yeah, at the beginning we adore Rose, fair... But we grow to learn that she's super problematic.
0: That's spoilers.
1: I'm so sorry. I mean, (laughs) Katra too.
0: Not that she's a villain. That she gets a redemption arc is. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Yeah. I'll just cut that section.
1: Okay. Yeah. It is hard to find good examples of that without
0: spoiling anything. Yeah.
1: (laughs) We just had an interesting conversation. Which I would like to continue after this podcast. Um,
0: oh, I agree with you already. I just didn't think of that point you made.
1: Oh, thanks. Look at me, so smart. Eh. Fair. <laughs> ah, yeah. So we're still talking to Hammond, who believes that the alien we saw on camera is Ra, because there is just one alien. Uh, there's just one Gwold, uh, which is great. Um, Still talking Monolith over here. And at that point, I wasn't sure whether he might be right or not, because I was kind of convinced. I mean, they already recast their protagonists, okay? So they also might have recast Ra. And my reaction to that was, are we really giving the dude a supernatural death? Why?
0: Supernatural death, as in the TV show not being not natural.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I mean, the TV show in which everyone dies and then is realised. It's kind of hilarious. And I kind of watch too much supernatural. Um, (laughs) So I was a bit surprised by the idea that Ra was back because I thought, okay, but you don't have to go all Voldemort on this. You can have more than one villain. That is perfectly possible. We already talked about that I would like if there were more variety to the species of aliens so that we would not only handle Goa'uld, but also had other villains who are related to other human cultures. For example, Narcissus, who is the emperor of the universe or something super interesting in my opinion. Um, And I was surprised that they were so hung up on Ra that they would choose to realive him. Spoiler, they didn't realive him, so we're good on that part. But for a minute, I was kind of disappointed by the storyline here. Even better than just reviving Ra, in my opinion, was the hilarious move of Hammond to justify why he thought the alien was Ra. He said, it must be because his eyes glowed. That is as dumb as saying, that must have been Lil's. they have a nose. I mean, how do you know that is not a characteristic of the species? Why did you think that is definitely specific to this one individual? It's ridiculous. And yeah, here again we are talking about how Hammond sees the Goa'uld as a complete monolith. He even sees them so monolithic that he can't Imagine anyone but Ra. For him, it's uh, this entire species, for him, really is one person. That is insane. Yeah, fair. I'm so sorry for my monologues. Really. (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) That's great. Um,
0: Captain Carter.
1: Yeah, at this point we get introduced to Captain Carter, who is a female lead role. Who would have thought, isn't that great? I was very excited to meet her because I really liked that we would get a person who's perceived as a woman working in the military, because the last movie did not have that. And we are even confronted with sexism in the military. And I think that was a very positive aspect of the movie, that they actually addressed that. But you want to first?
0: No, no, go ahead.
1: All right. Um... A big problem I saw was, well, there are multiple big problems. Let's start with the generic sexist Soldiers 1 and 2 in the background. Those were fine. Those were classic 90s sexists of why aren't you in the kitchen? This is hilarious. Go fuck off. You can't fight. Are we an explicit? uh, Can I use slurs? Oh, yeah. I just said fuck. Okay, cool. Nice. That is helpful. (laughs) So these two, that was fine. I think that was an important integration into the scene because that is very much something that uh, people perceived as women face on a day-to-day basis and even more so did in those times. So I think it was important to address that. I also liked that the first person to say something against that was Carter herself. That was important to me personally. And now we get to the more problematic parts. For example, Hammond. He is uh, construed as the exception TM to all of the stereotypes. So he is this military... Are you talking about
0: Hammond or O'Neill?
1: I'm talking about Hammond. I I will get to O'Neill. O'Neill is worse than Hammond. But Hammond is a problem in and of himself, really, because he is constructed as the exception. So yes, he believes in chain of command and he believes in setting time limits to tasks. And then when it gets important and when the viewer sees, morally speaking, that you should not listen to the chain of command and that you should give a time limit a little more leeway, it's unrealistic to expect that the military would actually act that way, but Hammond always makes the right call. Notice air quotes. (laughs) Hammond is depicted as this person who defies those laws. And that is unrealistic. That is not what a military boss is like. Why am I talking about this right now? Because he is also the exception to being sexist. He is defending Carter and he is speaking up against that. And not to be fronting, and there is a lot of company culture and corporate culture in the military too, that has changed. And I don't believe you could say the things that were said to Carter in front of your boss today, but I think that would happen behind closed doors anyways. And I do not think at the time of this movie that Hammond would have actually spoken up. It's way more likely that he would have reprimanded Carter for being like a bad sport who can't take a joke or something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that is specifically problematic because by this simple move, you eradicate all problems strict chains of command have. You don't need to talk about what it means to have a bad boss in a setting of highly authoritarian decision making if you don't have a bad boss or if the boss is generally flawless, because, I mean, you don't have to construe him as bad, okay, but he, he barely makes a mistake. And the mistakes he could be making would be very understandable from the perspective of the movie and its time. So I think it would have been way more fruitful to actually give Hammond problematic characteristics to then have that being pointed out by, for example, Carter, having her do the educative work and maybe that even being helpful to her and changing her position in this male-dominated world. But instead we get, no, it's already fine, really. They're just some douchebags. So the two sexist stand-ins are also construed as exceptions. And I think that is a pattern we will see a lot with this series. The bad guys, the the racism, the sexism, all that – It's just exceptions. It's just those dickheads and they are inherently bad, but it's not a systemic issue here because the system in itself, as for example represented by Hammond, is fine and it's flexible and it will listen to you if you do make the right call.
0: I want to bring the discussion back to Sam Carter because I think uh, a strong female lead in a 90s show is something we should talk about both in context of how the character was depicted back then and uh, how things should be done differently today. Um, Sam Carter has the typical snark and humor of the tough girl uh, who stands up to the man. And that is a trope that has been used a lot over the years. Yet I can't deny that I really enjoy her comebacks. Uh, (laughs) What is your take on her character as you have seen it until now
1: so I have some opinions I agree with you that this this strong outspoken snarky female character that is in fact a trope I must admit I like her convex too and I think does that not make sense? Should I cut that sentence down? <laughs>
0: I just wanted to say your sentences never stop. <laughs> they I just go on so and on and on. sorry, I
1: knew. So, okay. I like Carter. I like her comebacks. They're great. I do not think that this would have to be tropey. The problem is the way that Carter is coded with her clothing, etc. in a very mask-presenting way, although she is perceived as a woman. That is a strong contrast to our villainous aliens who are usually played by people perceived as men but are dressed and wear makeup in a very effeminate sort of constructed way. And the result of that is that you have the coding of female bad, male
0: good. Female either bad. Uh, if it's done by the um, antagonists or by generally male red people, uh, or alternatively, female equals victim, as we see in Share.
1: Exactly. And the only way for a character perceived as a woman not to be either a victim or evil, and we will come to Share later because Share actually is now constructed as a villain as a result of being a victim. And I want to really talk about rape culture on that one. But to stay with Carter, the only way as a female perceived character not to be either a villain or a victim is to assimilate into the male world. That is what Carter represents. You just need to... Survival of the fittest. (laughs) You just need to adapt and then you will be accepted. And that is construed as something good. That is not a critique. That is not saying you are still being oppressed. That is saying, if you play by the rules, everything will work out fine. I don't understand why you're complaining.
0: Okay, so now we have introduced a couple of new characters, as in Hammond and as in Carter. We are sitting at the table and discussing how to proceed
1: Yes, now we're talking military strategy, and I find it quite ironic where that leads to. Because, of course, we're in the US military, and of course, that means aggression is the best defense. So, to be fair, yes, there was the abduction of a soldier. That is an aggression in itself. We will have to admit that. However, the solution proposed by Hammond basically is... Once more, just throw in a bomb, it'll be fine. And that is kind of an exaggerated move. If you consider like harm done already versus harm to be inflicted, that is ridiculous. Can you imagine anyone saying, one person died, we should nuke that country? No, of course not. That is silly. But that is what Hammond suggests. We're not supposed to be on his side, to be fair. O'Neill is against the solution. But is he against the solution because it is completely disproportionate, even if there are only Goa'uld on this planet? No. He thinks it's bad because Jackson is still there and because the entire civilization of people he in this scene really calls kids still exists. And he lied about that. I think that was a great move from O'Neill already hinting at his distrusting relationship with the military in general, which still, I would love to see that arc. But we remain with the infantilizing perspective on the people of Abydos by O'Neill.
0: The people of Abydos, and that is one thing I wanted to mention while we're talking about it right now. Uh, the name was not dropped in the movie before, and I thought it was an interesting choice not to have a name for the planet in the movie at all. I am very glad we gave them a name retrospectively.
1: I agree with that. I can also think of why that choice was made, because Jackson only rudimentarily spoke the language of the Abedonian people.
0: That's exactly how it's Nice, I like
1: it. It's it's a fancy name, not gonna lie. Uh, So I guess you could justify that. However, at the end of the movie, he somewhat understood them, and it would have been appropriate to mention that. But... Yeah, that was rectified and we are gracious enough to see when a flaw has been seen and corrected. And we like that. So, but yeah, we're still in the military command room. We are talking about preventively nuking a planet. And I think... That was an odd scene to be seen. I am glad that O'Neill was against it. I am not sure we are supposed to be entirely against it. We are supposed to see that as a reasonable move. And I find that quite interesting. Because if you are being honest, what's happening here is simply that the military, the US military, is projecting its own way of action onto the gold. They say okay, they have access to our planet, that means they will definitely invade us. They suggest that simply by having access, that would mean they will do so. Not everyone does preventive and expansive foreign policy, but I would argue that it was a modus operandi for the US at the time the movie was created. And so I'd argue what's happening here is that the creators of the movie are projecting the style of foreign policy their country does onto everyone else they think it's universal what I also noticed was that Hammond suggested that this time you bring Jackson back and it was like the answer of O'Neill was yes sir and it was like why why? He's your friend. He doesn't want to. You already have a scientist who can help you. You can like email each other through the Stargate. Why the fuck do you say yes to that?
0: You talked a few minutes ago about uh, the solution to problems like these by just having things work out. And that's exactly what they do here. Uh, they force Jackson to come back, but conveniently his love interest gets abducted, so now he wants to anyways.
1: Yeah, which is also kind of ridiculous. Why would that make him want to come back?
0: Um, because they uh, intended to go after the force that Altigoa would and he is in the hopes of finding her again. He would not have that opportunity if he stayed at Abados.
1: Okay, fair still. Well, the whole thing about Shari just being trauma porn... Um, <laughs> what? Well, I'm not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> is something else, and we will get there, but not now because we're already butchering this, anyways. Moving on, I think for me, that's about it for the scenario pre entering the Stargate. If you have any additional
0: takes, I want to quote Agent Carter, not a <laughs> wrong character.
1: Oh, but she has good <laughs> quotes. We all like us some Peggy.
0: It's Captain, isn't
1: it? It's Captain Carter. It's Dr. Captain Carter, in my opinion, because I really like when Jackson does that.
0: I want to quote Captain Carter. It took us 15 years and three supercomputers to MacGyver, a system for the gate on Earth. Um, I know you haven't seen MacGyver, it's even older than Stargate.
1: <laughs> I know, but I know what it is. It's this weird dude who makes crappy inventions from household gadgets. It sounds super realistic.
0: Um, exactly. Uh, and he is portrayed famously by Richard Dean Anderson, who is our Colonel O'Neill. Uh, which is, oh, what a lovely Easter egg. <laughs> which is uh, why she...
1: Makes that reference.
0: Which is why she makes that reference. The best thing about this, though, is that Amanda Tapping, who perfectly portrays Sam Carter, um, apparently ad-libbed this line when she auditioned. And this line might be the reason she got the role.
1: Oh, that's such a genius move. I really like that. And I really like her her portrayal of Captain Carter. I just have a problem with how the character's written.
0: (laughs) Absolutely fair.
1: So, I would argue a good move would be to fast forward towards the reuniting of o'neill and jackson after having passed the stargate
0: did we talk in podcast about the name change from shoguri to shari
1: we did not talk in podcast about the ah we i think we have recorded you correcting me about how to pronounce her so we could use that
0: do you want to say something about that and then just uh, make it short and then okay. I- if you can yeah. and well, then <laughs> we go from there
1: it is a problem i know so Shaori's name was changed to shari and i did not know that so i pronounced her wrong like five times at the beginning of this podcast because i mixed up both names i find it very confusing as to why that happened
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, Michael Shanks, who portrays Dr. Jackson, apparently couldn't pronounce or had a hard time pronouncing Shaori. So that might be why they changed it.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think that is kind of problematic. So, I mean, I'm not sure whether I'm pronouncing Shaori right, but it does not make sense to me to change a character's name because another can't pronounce it correctly. I would have much preferred to either admit that Chow Ray was just a nickname, like like a pet name, as couples do, uh, or if and I would have liked that so much better if uh, Doctor Jackson was continuously mocked by the Ebedonian people for not being able to pronounce his wife's name.
0: Especially because it's a thing that happens in real life, that people have difficulties pronouncing uh, names in languages they don't speak, which is absolutely fair. Um, People have problems saying, especially my last name, all the time. Uh, But I do appreciate the effort.
1: Yes, and it gives a weird vibe to instead choose to rename the character. Because here again, we have a form of accommodating the white gaze, and in this case, the white tongue, I guess. Uh, Instead of just acknowledging flaws and mistakes that can occur in intercultural communication and how to navigate them accordingly. In real life, you also don't change the name of your partner because you have a hard time pronouncing it. That's ridiculous. So... I would have much preferred to either have the pet name version or the Haha Jackson is
0: an idiot version of this
1: instead of simply renaming the character and pretending nothing happened.
0: Uh, It does happen that people change their names uh, when they go to a different country or are around people speaking different languages so that they are easier to be pronounced by the people they are surrounded with. That is
1: true. But there is a difference in between doing that of your own volition or That's having the that point being I to make. a director decision. So, yeah. I'm glad we agree on that. All right. So, we have... Ah, yeah. Well, okay. Slight tangent. So, before we run through the Stargate, we throw a package of tissues through it because Dr. Jackson has allergies and this is how... O'Neill intended to communicate that this was a friendly encounter to be happening. And I found that idea kind of really cute, especially when uh, he got the answer with the empty tissue package and please send more. Although, do they not have tissues?
0: I thought you wanted to rant about that and I'm so glad you you didn't because I love that scene.
1: (laughs) No, I like that. I think that is a genius idea and I think, again, it's really cute and thoughtful. It's like, oh, my man's over there on the other hand of the universe and his nose is running. That is so sad for him. Let's send him some paper towels. I really like that. Um, yeah. Then afterwards, we move through the Stargate. We encounter Jackson and Skara. And later in this scene, even Share, which I'm just going to continue calling Share now, I guess, because that's her name now. Yeah. Okay, great.
0: That's how they use it throughout the whole TV show.
1: All right. And there are a lot of things about that scene that I immensely disliked. From Jackson somehow being the military leader in Abydos, which in my opinion does not make any sense.
0: He has no military experience whatsoever. And uh, there are all those fighters and rebels who... Fought just as much as he did, if not more, in the rebellion against Graa. It's, exactly. it's weird.
1: Jackson is this kind of nerdy trope and he's not really apt for the role he's being placed in, in my opinion. Especially if you compare him to Skara. So there is that. And the dude led a revolution. Like, I know he's young and stuff, but I think he would be kind of good for that role and it would give him some agency and yeah i would have really liked to see skara in a leader role instead of jackson and jackson is not only a military leader here but later we realize he's basically the one who's calling the shots on this planet which is super weird because now we have this former white savior who is now continuing to be like half a monarch
0: uh yeah and it removes any sort of agency the people of abydos would have had before
1: exactly so continuing with what i disliked about this scene uh we have shari who is only entering later because we don't know why but she immediately heads to jackson and is very like glued to him also she has no weapon she is there at this stargate, which is kind of a threat, because creepy aliens could come through and she's unarmed for no reason. As
0: the only character, all the other Abedonians in that area carry arms.
1: Yeah, that is an important thing to specify. So, of course, again, we have this trope of the the character perceived as a woman not able to defend themselves. It's ridiculous quite frankly uh we also have jackson saying don't be shy now too Shari uh when she heads towards him and is kind of wary of the strangers where i'm like a she has reasons to be wary of them in my opinion second the infantilization you 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 portray her as being incapable of fending for herself, even in a purely verbal way. She's just standing there completely focused on this dude. And it's super weird. And his response to that is talking to her like she's a child.
0: That scene struck me as particularly odd because... um as incredibly incapable as they are in portraying that, Shari um, is supposed to be the character that has wit and is the one at least somewhat in control of Daniel. That is what uh, Daniel Jackson later on um, comments about her, uh, that she is witty and the only one who didn't fall for him and that uh, he is more shy in the relationship. He says those things and they obviously want us to see her as this really great character, but they show us none of that. On the contrary, they really just portray her as a child without agency.
1: As a hyper-sexualized child without
0: agency. Being there only as a glamour piece to the side of Daniel Jackson.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that analysis. And I think it's one of those typical moves of um, being too lazy to make the effort to write a complex character and instead just telling us, hey, look, this character is complex. And it's like, no, dude, that's not enough. And that is not enough to consider her a strong female role because she isn't. We're just told to think she is, but we never get to see anything like that at least not at this point uh so from shaori to from shari i will never get to not confuse those names now that's great Um, (laughs) just
0: give it some time we only have seen one fair
1: fair uh to i wanted to say o'neill but beforehand i want to point something out about the don't be shy that also very much annoys me like if you talk to your partner that way which is horrible Don't do it. Yeah, please don't fucking do it. That is so weird. You need to work on your relationship if that is how you talk to each other. Um, But if you will do so, and you are in a situation where you can talk multiple languages, and in one of those, other people surrounding you would not understand your derogatory behavior, you might want to consider not using the foreign language, but instead... Talk to your partner in their mother language if there is something personal you have to discuss. That is something I generally dislike about this movie. After the first movie, I was hyped to see more more Goa'ut language, to see to see more intercultural communication, to see more language barriers because all of those were things. The last movie actually did really great. And now we're only talking English, no matter what. We're talking English when we're confronted with O'Neill, which I can see that he can only speak English. And if the others learned English in the year while he was gone, that kind of makes sense. But also when only Jackson and the Abedonians are uh, communicating with each other, then still people speak English. And worst of all, least sensible of all, the villains speak English too now. So, I don't know, Ra's ghost came magically speaking English and teaching it to its peers. Like, what the fuck happened there?
0: The language aspect of the 1994 movie was one of the best things of that movie. And yes. it's such a shame that they dropped that basically completely.
1: And for no reason. they They do not even explain anything about that. It is completely... Incoherent. It makes no sense. Especially the villains are kind of annoying me, and especially the situations when only uh, native speakers plus Jackson are in the room and it's still being spoken English. Like I can see why you would do that for the scenes with Carter and O'Neill. Okay, fine. I guess I mean you speak the language. Mostly everyone speaks. That makes kind. That kind of makes sense, right? That is something I do. In my everyday life like if there is a person who's only speaking english but not german then i will speak english of course in a group but i like but i wouldn't just randomly okay i would just randomly speak english anywhere that's just my thing but generally that's not a normal mo and i don't like that
0: and that's a grain of salt my sweet water because I really do love Michael Shanks and his portrayal of Daniel Jackson, and I'm sure you will see why later on. Um, But the fact that he did not put the effort in to learn at least bits of the language of the Abedonians so that he could have the scenes on Abydos with him speaking in their native tongue, it's a bit sad.
1: Was that the only reason why we now get the entire English stuff?
0: Uh, I'm not sure. I think it might have been a decision by the producers as to make it easier for the audience to understand everything that's being said. Um, I just disagree with the decision.
1: I disagree with the decision too. I just don't want to put it on the one actor. Uh, if that is not the reason, you know what I mean? Like. Oh yeah, sure. I I would argue that is a lot of the flaws we're talking here about, in my opinion, are just a fault of the writers, really. Sorry, not sorry.
0: <laughs> oh, I have a fun fact about that I can pepper in right now. Um, one of the main creators of the show is Brad Wright, and he considers Children of the Gods one of his old shames, which is what um, people call pieces of art they create that they later can't really stand anymore.
1: Okay, well, in that case, I have to say props for the character development of that writer.
0: Uh, that is basically the reason uh, why he um, re edited the whole thing and he had whole lines re recorded. And uh, he re released the two-parter episode as a movie again in 2009. As what's the full title? Uh, ah, Stargate SG1 Children of the Gods, Final Cut 2009.
1: But we're currently watching the 1997 version, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay, I would at some point really like to see the 2009 episode to reflect on what has
0: changed. There is one crucial part that has been changed that I want to talk about when we get to that point in the movie.
1: Ah, yes, we're at the reunion scene, right? We just had a food break, sorry.
0: That was so necessary.
1: (laughs) Yes, definitely. Um, Other things I did not like about the reunion scene. Here we go. It's a lot. Um, There are handshakes exchanged by everyone. Another thing I really liked about the 1994 movie was that a lot of things were not culturally invariant. For example, formals for greetings or... um, Formalities. Thank you like formalities for greetings and many many other things really uh knowing whether a thing is a chicken for example knowing what a chicken is was not culturally invariant i really like that and now we have this reunion scene and it is automatically understood that handshakes are how to greet each other and that is what they do and while i can accept that and while I can accept Jesus. And while I can accept that Jackson and O'Neill during their stay taught the others that greetings were done by handshakes in their culture, we never learn how to greet in Abedonian. And that is never even taken up again. So this is another aspect that is similar to everyone talking English. We now just have this complete assimilation to US culture, basically, ignoring every local way of handling things that could have possibly been there. And I think in doing so, the movie misses out a great opportunity of continuing its display of intercultural communication.
0: Especially considering that the character of Daniel Jackson is very much interested in different cultures and different ways of communication. Uh, it would be very character for him to learn not only how to talk Bedonian, but also to assimilate behaviorisms and um, gestures.
1: Exactly. And he has been encouraging the soldiers in the last movie to do so as well. So not only has he himself assimilated to Abedonian culture, he has also been somewhat of a diplomat, sharing his knowledge with others. And that is something this movie lacks, which I find very sad. Going on with US-American imperialism and interventionism, because that is just a theme of this series, it appears, um... O'Neill asks Jackson, and I quote, Why the militia? And oh boy, excuse you, but you just got for the second time the order to nuke their planet. And yes, you prevented that, but still there are hostile earthlings coming through the Stargate sometimes. there are hostile aliens Guaul, who know how to get there and you ask them why they would need the means to defend themselves.
0: Are you stupid? Also the fact that he calls them a militia is a very questionable choice of wording. Um, there is no reason not to view them as a organized functioning group of military.
1: Exactly. And I totally agree with that, and that would have been my next point. What this phrasing does, inevitably, is delegitimize the attempts of the Abedonians to defend themselves. It suggests that they are not allowed or should not be allowed to have their own independent military, which is a very questionable approach, but again, very in character for US foreign policy. So yeah, there's that. I wonder who sponsored all this. I would also like to add that ultimately this way of phrasing the question and even the question itself imply that Jackson and the Abidonians have to justify the existence of their military ultimately to the US military, meaning they, in the end, have the sovereignty of interpretation when it comes to the question whose military actions and whose military existence at all is justifiable and whose isn't. We have a short excourse to a very short dialogue between Captain Carter and O'Neill. Captain Carter introduces herself as Dr. Carter to Jackson and O'Neill responds by... Thought you want to be called captain to that and we are supposed to empathize with him on this
0: we Oh I don't don't think I agree with that Really No um I think this was a display of his immaturity and um we were to understand that Carter can decide which rank or which title she wants to be called by whom
1: interesting because I felt like the scene did not reflect on that.
0: I think they did a relatively poor job. I think um Carter's response should have been more
1: I agree her response should have been more fierce. Like mm. she she should have corrected his expectation there.
0: I think her response should have been more straightforward so that there is no margin for misunderstanding this depiction. Uh, But I do think this is what the show intended to show us.
1: Interesting. To me, it did not feel that way. I think in the scene in the military command room, we were supposed to see that even O'Neill has some sexism in his brain. But in this particular scene, I felt like we were more supposed to see, oh, but see, she's inconsistent too. And uh, yeah, it gave me personally a weird vibe. However, I would argue there are solid reasons for her to introduce herself as Dr. Carter to Dr. Jackson, because in this scenario, they're, they're talking to each other as scientists. So that is just the relevant title in this context.
0: And that is what she replies to Anil. Uh, she tells him that um, Captain is the rank she is to be referred to by military, which is not the case right now.
1: Yeah, but that is not the same as... See, I think... Carter would also demand her military title to be acknowledged in other civilian situations, because that is normal. Colonel O'Neill is Colonel O'Neill, not only in the military, also to civilians. The difference here is that she has two titles and there are two specific contexts. This is not just military versus civilian context. This is military versus academic context.
0: We don't see him interact with civilians or we have not seen him yet interact with civilians. So that's an assumption.
1: Fair. It is normal, however, if you know the title.
0: No, not really, no. Uh, it's it's not mandatory and not... Uh, um, common for civilians to address soldiers by their rank. I'm
1: not sure about that, Hi.
0: Hiya, editing punk again. We have since looked up how to properly address military officials, and Lils was right. Here is a quote from the Fort Knox Civilian Newcomers Guide, to which I will obviously link in the doobly-doo. Start quote. For military personnel, terms of address are more formal. Unless told otherwise, and always in public, military personnel should always be addressed by their rank and last name. The tables below show proper terms of address for army ranks. Generally, when speaking directly to an officer, it is customary to refer to him or her simply as sir or ma'am, rather than by rank and last name. You should avoid addressing the officer or any soldier just by rank, e.g. colonel, lieutenant or sergeant, as this is often considered rude. End quote. Obviously, this absolutely lacks any instruction on how to address non-binary stuff, but that is a different discussion.
1: Still, I do think this scene has an off vibe. And I disagree with that coming up as clearly supposed to be sympathizing with her instead of him.
0: No, I'd no, it's not, it's not clear. I just said that it's uh, poorly done and that they should have done a better job at I doing that. I am honestly
1: not seeing their intention here as that positive, to be honest. Okay, I would yeah, question fair. that as an assumption as well.
0: All right, fair.
1: So, uh, continuing, we um, have a change of scene and there is a little bit of a reunion party at which Skara presents O'Neill his self-made booze. To which O'Neill reacts very poorly by addressing Jackson and asking him, what are you teaching these kids? And, my boy, everything about that sentence is wrong. First off, he just assumes that Jackson is the one who taught them how to produce liquor. How are you supposed to know that? Can't Skara have had the idea himself? Why do you assume that was Jackson's doing?
0: Especially considering the fact that most cultures have some sort of alcoholic beverage.
1: Exactly. Interestingly, alcohol is widely culturally invariant. It's a quite interesting thing.
0: What Lils is referring to here is not modern-day global consumption of alcohol, but rather a theory by Edward Slingerland, who argues that intoxication sparked innovation and civilization throughout human history. There will be an article in the doobly-doo.
1: Um, Of course, again, we are confronted with O'Neill infantilizing the Abedonian people, but especially Skara. I know that we have O'Neill's background of his dead son and somehow seeing his dead son in Skara. But I would argue that arc is highly problematic if you consider the way that O'Neill interacts with Abedonians and specifically this young man. This will also get much worse when we come to our trauma-porn arc later this series. Um, We are again confronted...
0: This episode, I I assume.
1: Yes, exactly, this episode. Although I'm just assuming that the series has a lot of that kind of stuff. I do not expect this to be a short arc. But we'll see. Maybe they prove me wrong. Um, Talking Shari, again... She is at the party, and Jackson and O'Neill, I think, want to leave somewhere I don't remember where. And that is the first time we ever see Shari doing anything proactive. And what is the proactive thing she does? She basically gnaws off Jackson's face. Well, I'm not wrong. And that is supposed to, I guess, display her independence and her strength of will. But honestly, all it does is still keep her as a prop. The only person she's really interacting with remains Jackson, which is very interesting because she's with a whole bunch of people she grew up around. Like, she must have had a social environment before the guy landed there. What what has happened to that? Has anything happened to that? Will we ever see her interact with anyone else in a meaningful way? And yeah, this proactive move of shoving his face against hers is also kind of sexualizing. So Shaori really doesn't get to be a real person. She doesn't get to be a character. She doesn't get to do anything interesting. And in this scene, she actually even is sexualized by other characters. And again, I'm not so sure this was meant to be a negative thing. This was more like, look at what a hot girl our protagonist got himself and how heavy they are. And to me, that was really weird. We do later on hear from Share having some independence and that she's the only one who doesn't admire Jackson crazily. But we never get to see that kind of behavior. So it's kind of, it doesn't really count. Talking Carter's titles, I really like that Jackson refers to her as Captain Doctor. In my opinion, that should just stick around. I really liked that. It was kind of cute because obviously he now was insecure about what was the respectful way of talking to her and he tried and this is what he came up with and in my opinion that is really cute.
0: Jackson is such a tropey character but in this particular case I can't really be mad about it because he is such a cutie.
1: I mean yes exactly he, he is such a trope but he is adorable and I think he is very respectful in his communication usually and that is something I value a lot especially given that there aren't many characters in this series who do that.
0: I think that is part of the trope because he, as the scientific nerdy guy, is also the guy with the most feminine characteristics and uh, the respect towards other people is part of that quote-unquote femininity um, that is displayed in his character.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. It's a bit sad because sometimes I wonder about the intention of displaying him that way. Like, is he supposed to be seen the way we perceive him right now as this sensible guy who's kind of in touch with his emotions, who pays attention to others and pays them due respect? Or is he supposed to be seen as somewhat ridiculous in his attempt to be nice? You know what I mean? Like, I wonder how he was intended as a character when he was written.
0: I think I do know what you mean. Um, At this point, I, again, want to make clear, when I talk about certain characteristics as being feminine or masculine, I do not think that those characteristics are inherently that. Uh, Quite the contrary, I don't think there are such things as...
1: Exactly. Genders are not monoliths.
0: Yes, I don't think there are uh, such things as um, gender-specific characteristics. But I do use these terms as they would be seen by the majority of the society creating these media.
1: Exactly. This is more about the question through what tropey lens masculine and feminine would have been regarded in that context and not about our perspective on what feminine and masculine mean. So. Our reunion party is unfortunately interrupted by Goa'ulds who are there to abduct people so that they can use their bodies as hosts.
0: For future reference, there is no plural as for the Goa'uld.
1: Oh, interesting. So, the Goa'uld arrive and now we have the very weird occasion of the villains randomly speaking English. Why? I mean, you can explain to me why all the others learned English. I understand the Abedonians have chilled a lot with Jackson, that makes sense, and now they have guests. So, yeah.
0: It would have made a lot more sense for Jackson to learn Abedonian.
1: I think Jackson learned Abedonian. We do see him talk like three lines, which are supposed to acknowledge, okay, he learned that, but right now that's not relevant which is weird because in the scenes when only Jackson and Abidonians are talking to each other, it's still English. That is odd. But in the presence of O'Neill and Carter, I can totally see why we're speaking English. And I also just can see, okay, the Abedonians learned English. Fine. I get that. How the fuck did the Gua'ul learn to speak English? Did they have a picnic with their colonialized species here what happened like someone explain that plot line to me plausibly
0: please they are gods they are all-knowing No, no no i'm kidding
1: (laughs) yeah okay that yeah the joke i can take (laughs) (laughs) but yeah all-knowing gods very interesting thing very bad to put into your story because then you have a whole problem about how to defeat them it's impossible and I guess they did not do that because then did Ra want to get blown up? Was he suicidal? Interesting lines of thinking, my friends. In the fight with the Goa'uld that takes place at the scene, we are unfortunately confronted with some, well, bad tropes. So Sharae is being captured, just as Kara. So this is where the trauma porn arc begins, by which I mean that... O'Neill and Jackson need some character development, especially Jackson needs some so that he will become a real person. And to do that, they instrumentalize Skara and Shari to be captured so that we then get a hero arc for the other two, in which they go through some suffering and therefore develop their personality, both by showing us how they handle suffering and also by the characters changing through their suffering. That, to me, is a repetition of the 1994 movie arc. We have the great white saviors coming in for the Abedonian people in need. And while the 1994 arc was a macro scale, where it was the Western US civilization entering space to save the Abedonian planet, we now have the entire thing repeated on a micro scale. And I personally say, think that's highly problematic because Skara and Share, they, they don't get agency at all. There are just props, really, to be used for the storytelling, considering O'Neill and Jackson. I would have much preferred to see the ones being abducted by the aliens saving themselves or finding a way of escaping, then meeting with the rescue team and trying to get out together. That might still happen. I am not expecting it to. Another question I have is, why don't the Abedonian people have any alien weapons? They only work with US military stuff. And yes, that's the stuff with which they started the revolution. But surely after the war, there should have been some residue of alien weaponry. Why don't we get to see any of that? I would have really liked that because that would have also been an empowerment for the Abedonians in comparison to the US military. And we would have seen more agency and more empowerment for them in respect to their military position.
0: We didn't really talk about this before. Um, I never thought of asking, what did you think about the design of the a weapon technology the aliens used.
1: I have no clue about weaponry, so I can't say anything about its usefulness whatsoever. What I can say is I think those things looked really fancy. Yeah, I like that it was a staff weapon that could shoot. I don't know why. I don't think it's very useful, but I really liked the look. It gives me this Gandalf, but with a laser sword vibe.
0: (laughs) Oh, I love that.
1: Yeah, it's kind of really, really fancy. So, uh, fast forward to the end of the fight. Skara and Share are gone because, duh. What we now have is soldiers lying around in pain. We saw Jackson and O'Neill fighting a little bit during the scene. Who did we not see fighting? Yes. I have a guess. Ten points for you. Of course, it's Captain Carter because... Why would we see Captain Carter fight? She's only a captain in the military. Surely she never has to use a weapon. Instead, we see her healing one of the soldiers lying in the corner now. So again, we have this nurturing female trophy arc instead of a way more appropriate role for her, showing her as the fighter that she is. I must say, I like that Carter also has a doctor and is a scientist, she's smart and she's tough, and that's great. But we never see the tough side. And I personally felt like the movie felt like it needed an extra legitimization for a female character to be introduced into the military. And so what they did was also make her a doctor.
0: I think that is a good opportunity for me to point out one of the changes they made between the original script and this production. Captain Samantha Carter was originally lame. Was originally lame. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then she got less lame but still lame.
0: Captain Samantha Carter was originally called Lieutenant Samantha Clayman. Um and while this scene didn't make a difference for her, there is one scene in the prison they are thrown in later on. Do you know which scene I'm talking about?
1: I'm not exactly sure whether you mean the prison itself or the harem
0: no the prison okay uh o'neill gets into a fight with a brutish neanderthal look kind of looking guy and in the original script lieutenant samantha clayman intervenes and basically saves him with her martial arts skills Cool. i would have loved to see that with samantha carter sadly there are no fighting scenes with her in this first episode whatsoever it's a shame.
1: And that kind of feels ridiculous for a military personal. Like, are you kidding me? There are enough combat scenes. You could have at least shown her throwing a punch or something. I don't know. That felt strange. Um, but yeah, going to the prison. I have an interesting question about the depiction of aliens. What's with the turbans? So, as we we're already talking about the prison... Scene, I would like to talk about the depiction of the aliens in this one. We do have a slight change of style.
0: You asked for diversity in aliens, didn't you?
1: Yes. And is this what I meant? No. Oh boy, ladies and gentlemen and everyone else, be careful what you wish for. I made a horrifying mistake here. So as you might remember, in our first podcast episode, I talked about how the othering effects of using some religions, gods, to make them evil aliens is somewhat fixable. If you create a universe in which there are many alien species and many religions are somewhat resembling the species of aliens and you have good and bad cultural representation of anyone. So you have Narcissist Jesus, but positive archangels or something like that. You know what I mean? Stargate did decide to have more variation in their cultural representation. Unfortunately, they decided to do it in a very different way from what I proposed. Instead of... Introducing a different species with different cultural markers. We get servants for Apophis who carry his throne or something into the dungeon and they wear turbans. Now, mixing up symbols from wearing different cultures, there is no issue with that in general. On the contrary... Different cultural systems of interpretation always medley together. That's completely normal. That is not only a side effect of globalization, but simply intercultural interaction in general. And that is, in general, a good thing, which is not often represented in the media. And that should be taking more space. But, again, Stargate has this strong dichotomy of our completely Western-interpreted protagonists who we are supposed to see as good, standing in opposition to our villainous aliens who are to be perceived as foreign from the Western perspective. And if you take that into consideration, then you have again the Orientalist stigma of a monolith of the, air quotes, other you have the Egyptian symbols of various gods and now you add in turbans, which are to my knowledge no part of ancient Egypt culture. But that is not what matters. What matters here is simply, it is strongly, profoundly perceived as non-Western and therefore it's other. There is only Western and other. And that only adds to the perception of the alien people as a monolith. And again, still as an evil monolith. It is not only fundamentally other and strange, it is also fundamentally bad.
0: Weirdly, not only the aliens are portrayed as a monolith. Um, In a way, the heroes are part of one monolith as well. The big Western hero monolith. And... Uh, While there are different characters and they get a story, it's still a very one-sided view of how the Western-perceived people are those that are intervening on behalf of the suppressed and step in as the heroes. There are no people in the suppressed groups that are akin to something we would perceive as a Western culture.
1: I see your point, and to an extent, I agree about our heroes also being a monolith. We still barely have any changes in perspective when it comes to how to act militarily, and they all seem to have the same value system. And while, for example, Jackson cannot be be counted as a whole person (laughs) because he just lacks the character development and refinery it would take to make him such. We do see our Western heroes in a more individualist light. And that is something that is a fundamental characteristic of this treatment of the Abdonians as a monolith. The Western heroes lack, which is why I would argue it's not quite the same thing. I think you're right that treating one group as a monolith has, by definition, the side effect of treating the group against which you are othering the same way. You cannot construct a cultural trope of one culture without inherently creating the trope of your own, because... This is a form of inclusion and exclusion. You exclude by othering, and the othering creates a monolith. And for the monolith to be other, you need to be your own monolith who is completely contradictory to that. But I would still argue that our heroes are a more humanized monolith, if you will.
0: Oh, absolutely. I just wanted to point out that there is no part of the suppressed people uh, that would be akin to something more western Asian.
1: Yeah, I completely agree.
0: And I am not only talking about the Abedonian suppressed people, but especially the...
1: The evil aliens.
0: No, um, the diversity of the imprisoned people.
1: I did not take note of that.
0: There are a huge variety of different cultures displayed in the prison scene, um, but none of them are comparable to a somewhat modern Western perceived culture.
1: Hardly a surprise you can't be victimized if you're that
0: advanced.
1: Hint hint. Um but going on with the description of our villains, the Gua'uld, We remain with the hypersexualization. All the guards are I think bare chested, um, still with a shiny snake helmet, so we are back to to savagery images of dehumanization as well. So in this, there is very much consistency between the old movie and the new two episodes here.
0: They show a lot of skin and they are built huge. Man, those are muscles. <laughs> <laughs> well, they
1: are soldiers after all, I guess. Uh
0: I guarantee you, Colonel O'Neill is not that muscled. <laughs>
1: oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Again, tropes of um, of strength over brain power. Right. You you have the classic. They were built for the bodily labor and stuff. I think that does play into this. There are a lot of tropes when it comes to especially the gold. Um. Now we get a cut to a harem. And the harem is even more of a shit show than the prison scene. Oh my goodness. So the harem basically consists entirely of people perceived as light-skinned or white women, because that is the tropey picture of what victimhood looks like. And now we are confronted with my least favorite scene... In this episode, we are watching how the aliens manage to possess human bodies. There is, I think it is the soldier who's been abducted in the first place. Yes. Yeah, because we still love us some victimhood instead of agency. Uh, She is brought to Apophis' beloved, I guess, his queen. Who needs a new vessel? We don't know why. Her vessel looks healthy. Maybe she just wants to look different now.
0: Oh, no, 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 no. Do uh, we know why? Mis- misunderstanding. Um, she doesn't really need a new vessel. She doesn't possess one as of right now. Um, the person we see carrying her is not a Goa'uld. The the wormy thing is the Goa'uld, is the alien. And um, the person carrying her is a Jafar, just as Tiag, who we get to know later on. Um And the Jafar carry the Goa'uld until they choose their vessels.
1: Yeah, you're right. He explains that later. Excuse my confusion and thank you for the correction. So we see this soldier being shown to the creepy worm thing. And she's rejected. I don't know why. She doesn't seem to fit, apparently. Then... Oh, yes, I think it is important to mention that the soldier in this scene is not nude. You will see in a minute why that is important. In the next scene, Shari is brought in front of the Goa'uld Queen. And she appears to be an acceptable vessel.
0: This is a trigger warning. We are going to talk about a scene that, in our opinion, functions as a metaphor for rape and victim blaming. If you do not want to hear about that, please skip the next 3 minutes and 30 seconds following the beep.
1: Share is displayed upon a table, nakedly, and the Goa old queen enters her body via her neck. The scene very much gives vibes of sexual assault and rape. So maybe somewhere before I start talking here, Editing Punk should put in a trigger warning.
0: I will. um, Before I do that, I will mention something uh, I was really annoyed by. Um, I told you about Captain Carter being written differently in the original script. Yes. There's a change here as well. The producers didn't originally want any nudity in their show. Uh, It was Showtime, the network, who presented the show, uh, who demanded the scene, including nudity, uh, in order to draw more viewers. Um, It's the only time the network asked for something like this. It's still disgusting. When releasing the two-parter as a movie in 2009, the producers completely removed the nudity scene. Still, streaming services to this day show the uncut version.
1: Yeah, I think the scene is very fucked up for multiple reasons. Number one, we have the discrepancy of the as white perceived woman who is not naked in opposition to Shari, who is foreign and therefore object enough to be displayed nudely because there is a fetishization of the strange. And then we also have the issue of the metaphorical rape. Because by this violation of Share, she is introduced into what is technically a villain arc. Sure, it is not her who is now a villain. Her body is being possessed by a Goa'ult. But I still find it highly unnerving that the directors of this movie and that the writers decided that... This character was basically raped and then as a direct result of that, turned into a villain. Especially when you consider that she was just, at least via lip service, introduced as a strong independent female character by not seeing Jackson as the hero everyone else admires him to be.
0: The strength of Shari is one of the characteristics Apophis and the Gua Uld later on possessing her name to be a reason for why she is chosen as a host. Um,
1: that is even more disgusting.
0: In a way, this is punishing her for her strength and independence.
1: Yes, I generally think this arc has a very victim-blaming vibe. Because, yeah, you have the supposedly strong female character who is raped and therefore turned into a villain. And the the whole thing is so disgustingly off. I really hated that scene. I already ranted while we watched. And in relation to that, I also want to talk about the display of Western sexism in the series. Because there is, I sadly do not remember the scene, but there is a conversation, I think, between O'Neill and someone else about how the Goa'uld treat women or how women are generally treated in those um, as foreign constructed cultures. And it is very much put an emphasis on, well... Look at how backwards these aliens are. They are selling their women. We are so much better. And I could just sit there and be like, are you kidding me? That is the bar we are setting for ourselves here. So you're good because this is not what you're doing. Like, is this a joke? Um, We are then uh, set free. And Tialk joins our group. Tjalk is a Jafar who has changed sides. I don't know who's talking to him to tell him to go. I think it's O'Neill. O'Neill. Yes, exactly. Um, Two things I don't like about that. I don't think O'Neill is that great at intercultural communication. And I think this is something Jackson would have probably been better at. Even more so, I do not like that someone else told Tjalk what's to do. I would have much preferred the storyline to just be him disobeying out of his own volition. There obviously was enough development for that. He always gave them those shady looks. I think it would have been nicer to have that been an independent choice of him.
0: Based purely on what we have seen in these two episodes, I agree mm-hmm. with you. I do think we learn a bit more about Tialg and his culture in the future. And I do think that at least a little bit justifies his depiction in this story. But given that we don't know those aspects yet, it seems lacking.
1: Fair. I would also like to point out that Tialg, in comparison to most aliens we see, and I mean Gua'uld as well as Jaffa, is comparably uh less nude and less effeminate.
0: Um he is very much as masculine as all the other guards uh wearing his kind of armor are. They are basically all not not necessarily dressed the same, though similarly, but they all have a similar uh body type.
1: I would agree the body type is similar. I would agree that there are guards of his kind which are also dressed less provocatively than the ones with the snakeheads but my point is about Tialk, is the only example of a morally sound alien whether Jafar or Goa'uld we get
0: who is not a prisoner. The prisoners later on join the fight uh, when they break free Um, but T.O.G. is the only alien with agency who joins the good side.
1: Fair. Um, we're almost at the end of the episode. I would like to point out that one thing that struck me as annoying was there are zero civilian casualties from U.S. military intervention. That is unlikely.
0: We have one soldier shot who I think survives, but he needs immediate first aid once he arrives on our side of the stargate
1: that is a soldier i
0: st- oh civilian sorry, sorry sorry civilian yeah. Casualties, yeah yeah yes. of course sorry
1: oh no that's fine it's just that struck me as odd um and <laughs> i think that has something to do with the sponsoring uh and yeah we're ending by having our only good alien tialk and our only good Bad human Kowalski, who is now an alien, so that doesn't even count. And I found that interesting because they are incidentally reproducing the dichotomy of good and bad, and they are just inserting one exception for each, and one isn't even an exception. And I do think that they think they brought nuance to this whole thing. But truth be told, it's just exceptionalism, and it's just the exception reinforcing the rule.
0: Talking about Kowalski returning infected, um, do you have any theories how this arc might continue?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think we will get some crappy bonding moments between O'Neill and Kowalski, and Kowalski will manipulate him. I think that would be a good arc. It would be interesting. Maybe that's why it's not happening. Wait. (laughs) Okay, that was rude. I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah, I do think that Kowalski will play a more active role. I think that he will succeed as a covert agent for some time. But I do think that eventually Jackson and O'Neill will catch up on him. And then they will probably try to force information out of him where Skara and Shari went. And that's how we will find them again. And then we will have to learn how to extract the Goa old from their host. That is very interesting. I'm looking forward to that.
0: There is one more change made between the 1994 movie and this show. And that is a necessary change for the for this display of parasitic behavior of the Goa old. The alien looks completely, utterly different from what we've seen in the movie before. Um I think you remember the weird, fleshy, alien visions we saw when Ra died. Uh, They replaced that with a wormy, snakey Goa'uld living inside the bodies now. Uh, What are your thoughts on that change?
1: Oh, yeah. Great that you ask. I think that is even more dehumanizing than what they chose in the first place. Beforehand, we had this being which at least resembled the proportions of a human being. And I... Do not think all aliens should look like human beings, of course not. But given how there is no way for us in this narrative to empathize with the Goa'uld, I think it is a poor choice to make them look especially strange and animalistic because that gives us less points of relation. So I think there is just further estrangement through that choice. I like that we have an alien race, which is not inherently evil. I think that was a good choice. I must say that I would prefer to also see some good Goa'uld. I do not expect that to happen in the foreseeable future. Um, What I also dislike is that the Jaffa are also an entire people of victimized persons. There is not much agency, there's actually no agency at all, in the carrying of the goa Ult, Especially since they are only second-class vessels, if you think about it. Because they're technically not vessels, they're just carriers. And I do think that is problematic.
0: Okay, that sums up the differences I noted between the movie and the show. For now, um, as a very first impression, um, what would you say are your feelings about the differences and what are your newer expectations for how the show might go on?
1: Well, that is a complex question. I would say that a lot of this was making things better and worse at the same time. So, for example, we have a female lead role. That is better. Unfortunately, she is displayed very poorly given the narrative that is imposed on her. That is for worse. I think in general the acting is a little better. <laughs> um, And I do think that we can look forward to a more complex storyline because we have introduced more species and planets. We have introduced the fact that there are... A whole lot of Stargates, which is great, because that means we can have more cultural interaction. Um, yeah, I expect the series to mainly be in English in general, which is a change I do not like. I expect the poorly chosen Skara and Chari trauma porn arc to continue. Mm, I expect very positive opinions about the US military. I expect that foreign policy will be portrayed as something inevitably expensive. Uh, not expensive, expansive. <laughs> and I think that there will be a lot of justification of preventive violence, which will not be reflected upon very well.
0: All right. Uh, the nineteen ninety four movie was written by. Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, as you might remember. Uh, Those two very much wanted to create their own sequels for this project. This got very awkward when MGM, the studio behind the movie, informed them that this was not a direction they were interested in pursuing. For years, the two of them harbored ill will towards the series for this very reason. While Devlin spoke on this issue, he said that he appreciates it for what it is, though he doesn't see it as a continuation of his own idea rather he sees it as another story altogether one that just happens to feature some characters and ideas that he and Emmerich created
1: it's basically a fan
0: fiction what do you think um would you prefer to see more movies in the mind of Devlin and Emmerich or are you more excited to see where these creators are taking the show
1: i want Emmerich and the other dude to continue giving input on the intercommunicational aspects. For example, the language barrier stuff, which I considered really great. And honestly, I would love if neither the new nor the old directors wrote the scripts. Because the storylines are... They're not... Well, okay. From a social justice perspective, the storylines are kind of abysmal. And it is hard for me to choose whether I consider the let's just randomly nuke a foreign planet arc which turned into a transphobia arc worse than the now introduced trauma porn with victim blaming. It's a difficult choice and I do not want to make it. It's pest and cholera and honestly I wish someone else would have written a new plot altogether. Is that very rude? It sounds like I really hate the series, and I don't. But I do think the storylines could be so much better. Honestly, let me write some alien species.
0: Oh, trust me, I would love to see that.
1: (laughs) Aw, it wasn't meant seriously, but thank you.
0: (laughs) All right, thank you guys for tuning in. uh, And listen to us talk about Children of the Gods. Next Sunday, we will be talking about the third episode of Stargate SG-1, The Enemy Within. Do you have any theories what this might refer to?
1: <laughs> Could be a dick and say Kowalski in a double sense, <laughs> because he has an enemy within himself, but he is now also an enemy within the military base. Uh, yeah, it's going to be about the old in our people. We're going to get some trauma porn, is what I'm trying to say.
0: I'm not wrong. Well, we'll see about that next week. I have one more addition to make to this. um, And that's about the mess that is the numbers of our episodes and the episodes of the show. Uh, Our first episode dealt with the movie 1994 Stargate. Our second episode dealt with the first two episodes of Stargate which aired as a two-parter and have only one title. From now on, our episode numbers will correlate with the numbers given to the Stargate episodes for the foreseeable future.
1: It's not our fault it's this confusing. Really, the franchise did this to itself.
0: And I think it worked out pretty well, given that from now on, we can basically count together with them.
1: Looking forward to you tuning
0: in. As always, you can find us on punkfishproductions.com, as well as on patreon.com slash punkfishproductions on our homepage and down in the doobly-doo. You can also find links to all the places you can listen to our podcast and to our Discord, where you are welcome to join us. Have a nice day.